do invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1, this first Sunday of Advent. As you turn there, I have a confession to make about Advent season. Uh, Many of you maybe recall my mentor who was here to dedicate uh, Landon in October. Well, I used to give him a hard time every Christmas because he was a guitarist and he led music at Valley View Nazarene, and he didn't care too much for playing about Christmas hymns every year. He thought they were too hard on the guitar. So he would gripe to me about it. And then along with that, he didn't care about crafting Advent sermon series every year, too, because he found that very hard. And it is hard because consider this. I can preach through the book of Acts, and it might take years to go through 28 chapters. Meanwhile, it's kind of expected every year to spend at least four weeks examining such familiar content in the Bible and do it in a fresh way. So I've managed to make it so far through six Christmases uh, here. I've looked at a prophecy in Isaiah one year. I looked at a good block of Luke 2 another year. I looked at it thematically with a series I called Tidings of Comfort and Joy. Last year we were in Luke 1 and we looked at the Song of Mary and the Song of Zechariah. I've kind of wanted to do something like this for quite some time, but I've hesitated because Joseph is, I want to say, a mysterious figure, but he's actually more of a, a quiet, I would say is a better description in the, in the scriptures. And the content on him is scarce in the scriptures, and that's okay because the gospel accounts aren't about Joseph. <laughs> They're about Jesus. And I guess I wanted to do something like this because I'm a fan of the underdog, you know. Well, let's look at somebody that we don't often talk about. And every Christmas, there's lots of material, songs, pictures, and much ado about baby Jesus, first and foremost, which as it should be, and we'll come back to that, but also about Mary or the wise men or the shepherds and angels or John the Baptist. But Joseph and his meekness just kind of hides behind all the other things. However, I hope you know by now that I believe the Bible is about Jesus, (laughs) And I never want to cover any subject in Scripture and say, I want to talk about this instead of God, (laughs) or this instead of Jesus and the cross. And I certainly don't want to rob the Christmas season's focus off of Jesus and onto somebody else. So there is this balance and caution that I come to this subject. But I'm ultimately preaching the Bible, which is why I'm not too worried. (laughs) And I've specifically entitled this Advent series, Reflections of the Father. And its meaning is twofold because we are going to be examining scriptures that look and feature Joseph. But we'll be examining them in light and in reflection of how Joseph, the early father of Jesus, reflects Jesus, Father, God. So with all that being said, I invite you to stand As we will just be in two verses today. Yes, I've managed to make a sermon out of that. (laughs) Verses 18 and 19 of Matthew chapter 1. says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had had been betrothed to Jesus before... Man, Lord help me. (laughs) Had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved 
to divorce her quietly. Let's pray. Father, um, Phil, I'm in a hurry this morning, and I just pray that you would give me your spirit to say your words and not mine. I pray that you would be glorified. Pray that we would be edified, that we would grow in our faith and knowledge of you, that we would learn to love and trust you, to love and serve others as well. Father, I pray against the enemy that he would have no say or dominion or hindrance upon us. I pray most of all that you would be glorified. We love you, Lord, and we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Throughout the Bible, we hear of God's relationship with man, spoken as between a groom and bride. We think especially of prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea. And throughout those prophets, there is heavy imagery of God taking Israel as his bride. The first place it shows up in Isaiah is in his 54th chapter. Uh, Verse 5, we read, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. In this verse we see both a magnitude and awesomeness to who God is, but also a personal intimacy and relationship. So you have your maker, which is, Awesome and transcendent and superior, your husband. Personal, relational, intimate. Holy one of Israel, set apart, out, um, high and mighty, again transcendent. And then your redeemer, the idea of a purchaser or a deliverer out of bondage. Personal, he chose you for freedom. And then finally, the God Of the whole earth he is called again. Superior, big, and magnitude. So again, magnitude, awesomeness, and then personal, intimate, relatable. And these three themes, marriage, transcendent God, and then personal, relatable intimacy, are going to converge on steroids in Matthew chapter 1. See, Matthew opens his account with an audience in mind. Jewish folk who have been waiting for the Messiah. And so he, he opens up speaking their language, a genealogy. This genealogy has a specific purpose. I like what one pastor says. Sometimes you feel like you're reading a Hebrew phone book. <laughs> you're not. If you count it, it comes to 14s. In fact, Matthew points this out in his 17th verse. Genealogies, especially in Jewish literature, for, were presented for more theological reasons than just medical reasons. Do you hear that? Because what skeptics do is, and what well-meaning believers begin to sweat over, is genealogy discrepancies. Oh, but look at Luke's genealogy. It's different when he maps out to the birth of Jesus. Well, compare with Old Testament genealogies, mapping out the same Old Testament people that Matthew is here, and there are discrepancies. And Matthew and Luke aren't looking to present a simple medical genealogical record. 
They're looking to present evidence that Jesus descends from a certain line and through a certain people. So they don't mind skipping generations, nor do they mind if they throw in a woman in the line as well as paternity. So for Matthew, his 17th verse covers his entire reasoning for his genealogy. It's about Abraham, so it's about the Jews. It's about David, so it's about the long-awaited king, Jesus. It's about the deportation to Babylon, so it's about the prophecies of redemption, bringing God's people from being conquered. And lastly, it's about Christ, the fulfillment and the answer to Abraham's promised seed, to David's promised eternal king, and to the promise of redemption. When Matthew comes to verse 18, we hear, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. If you miss it, the original Greek actually moves the words of Jesus Christ to an emphatic position. So Matthew is saying we're moving beyond usual begats, right? The genealogies. Uh, Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat. We're moving beyond that. And Matthew is saying here is a new category of origins. That's what the birth word is actually a Greek word you know, Genesis. And Genesis can mean birth, source, origin, or beginning. And so Matthew is saying now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, he's saying, pay attention because it's about to be radically different from the people Matthew just talked about. Yes, throughout the Old Testament, we have some amazing birth stories coming from old barren people or coming out of seemingly impossible circumstances, but they all had human fathers. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So the first thing that Matthew brings up is marriage. Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Some translations like to use that word engaged, but here it's not the engagement we're familiar with in our culture. This was a legally binding Contract, it was really marriage in all senses of the form with two big exceptions. They were not living together and they hadn't consummated their marriage. But in every other sense, they were a couple already. They were considered Mr. and Mrs. Joseph in the public eye. And Mary was off the market, as it were. What happened ceremonially is that Joseph and Mary made solemn promises to each other before witnesses. Mind you, this was probably the choice of Joseph's parents all the way around. They chose Mary for Joseph. Joseph, Mary, maybe both sets of their parents likely would have mapped out a timeline when they would be wedded. Sometimes a house needed to be completed if it hadn't been already for the man. What this allows also, though, is suddenly uh, Joseph and Mary could have conversations about their household affairs and how they might manage family in the future, when prior to betrothal, that would not be something you talk about with any random woman. Hey, if we got married, how would you handle this? No. In bigger cities, unlike Nazareth, where Joseph and Mary lived, it allowed for couples maybe to get to know each other a little bit better. While I know nothing about ancient Jewish customs except for what I read for to prepare for sermons, 
I'm just going to say that I find it very unlikely that most prearranged marriages saw the groom's parents picking a family they didn't know. That probably didn't happen. So, so contrary to how some movies might paint it, I don't think Joseph was meeting Mary for like the fourth time in his life. Uh, and they hardly knew each other or never talked. But rather it's estimated that Nazareth was maybe about one to two hundred people. And so the odds are Joseph is getting betrothed to a gal that he's known from a young age and very well could have been best friends with already. We don't know, but I'm just saying the odds are is that these two people are not indifferent, somewhat estranged people being forced into something rather unsavory. I'm sure there was happy butterflies in both stomachs. And Mary is betrothed to Joseph. What we know about Joseph is that he's a carpenter because Matthew records the mature Jesus coming to Nazareth to preach about and bring the kingdom of God. And you know the story in the gospel accounts. He's rejected. And one of the critiques coming from those who reject Jesus, they say, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Joseph is a carpenter. Interesting, too, the the criticism that's made, is this not the carpenter's son, seems to almost be in a present tense. Because who would the carpenter be at the time? Also, is this not, he did, they didn't say, is not this the late carpenter's son? But almost as if the carpenter was probably the only one around in Nazareth and maybe still there at the time of the statement. So with that being said, many people talk about Joseph's age. There's a common notion that he was an older man, maybe much older than Mary, because Joseph's last appearance in the life of Jesus seems to be when Jesus is 12 years old. As Luke records a memorable story where Jesus stays behind the temple in Jerusalem, and Joseph and Mary head home not realizing that Jesus is not in their long, huge caravan. Some state... But since Mary is in later episodes of Jesus' life, and Joseph isn't, maybe he was old and he died before Jesus headed out into ministry. Or maybe Joseph was busy. Or maybe while you have situations like Mary and Jesus' brothers, they literally go out to collect Jesus in Matthew 12 or in Mark 3 because they think Jesus has lost it. Well, maybe Joseph just stayed home because he wanted out of the family drama. (laughs) Or maybe he thought that Jesus was crazy too, and so he was embarrassed. The truth is, is we don't know. And I'm not putting those forward as theories that you need to accept. What's most probable is that Joseph is likely dead by the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Because a guy named Joseph of Arimathea takes care of Jesus' death duties. That is something that a Jewish father would have to do. Also, Jesus entrusts Mary's care to his friend, the disciple John, which Jesus would have had really no say over the matter if Joseph was still around. So Joseph is likely dead by the time of Jesus' crucifixion. But even then, we don't know how or why or when he died. We don't know if he died of natural causes or if he had an accident. We don't know. What we do know is what the Bible tells us. And what we do know is what God has chosen to reveal about Joseph and the Bible or the narratives in which Joseph are present aren't for not, are not for Joseph's fame or glory, but for the glory of God and Jesus. And Jesus 
Mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So before they came together, again, betrothals had this exception in a marriage. They hadn't consummated their marriage. Now, I know you've never read this story in Matthew, so I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. But Matthew tells us that Joseph has a very good reason that involved an angelic encounter for him to change his mind about divorcing Mary. (laughs) That was supposed to be a joke. I'm hoping you read Matthew. And then Matthew would go on to say at the end of Matthew chapter 1 that Joseph knew Mary not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. As I said earlier, there are passages that talk about Jesus' brothers and sisters. We see this in in Matthew 12 and in Mark 3. We see this in John chapter 7. We see this in Acts chapter 1. But Matthew, again, is not writing for purposes of simple medical or just a description of events. But as he set it up, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Again, as in here's something new. Here's something radically different than the genealogies leading up to him. But newsflash, Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Found to be with child almost has this passive sound to it. As in, it's likely that Matthew is describing it as it happened objectively. In other words, you have Luke 1, which gives you the subjective behind the scenes. The angel shows up to Mary. Here in Matthew, we're seeing it from the public point of view. It just out of nowhere, Mary was found to be with child. It's estimated that Joseph discovers Mary's pregnancy while she is four months pregnant. Luke chapter 1 verse 56 tells us that Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months. And then giving some time for her getting to Elizabeth and time to get back. So she had that time with Elizabeth, maybe to get motivated to prepare for talks she didn't want to have back at home. And brace herself for the onslaught she could expect in Nazareth, right? Commentator Adam Clark would go so far to say that her situation was the most distressing and humiliating that can be conceived. (laughs) Can you imagine? It's so bizarre to think that it's from God too because here we have the whole Jewish tradition, modesty and etiquette as the backdrop. The waiting young lovebirds, the week-long wedding is being planned, the anticipation of married life. Mary's a virgin. Joseph is a virgin too. If he hadn't been married before, as some suggest he may have been. A new home, a new family is forming in the minds and the hearts of these two. And then an angel shows up to Mary. What's he going to say? You're pregnant. (laughs) And there's only one way that humans know how that happens, and it doesn't involve storks. But there was another way that it happened just once, and it was for Mary. From the Holy Spirit. Commentator named Joseph Benson um, commentates on this and he gives us some good observations why the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus. First, we know that Jesus is the second Adam. That's what Paul alludes to him in Romans chapter 5. We see lots of similarities if we think about it because Adam was tempted in a garden. 
Jesus was tempted in a garden, praying that God would pass this cup from him. Adam brought the fall in the garden. Jesus appeared out of the tomb in the garden as Mary Magdalene thought him to be a gardener. And so the, the new covenant brings the new covenant in redemption. Paul's point in Romans 5 is that Adam brought death and made many transgressors. And so Jesus brings life and makes many righteous. Well, Adam was made without any father or mother, consequently leaving God as the father. And so Jesus comes without any earthly father, consequently leaving God as the father. Also, no earthly paternity leads back to Adam. Jesus comes without any original sin, which allows him to become sin for the entire world, being perfect. Also, Benson makes the point that Jesus being conceived in a virgin allows there to be no sort of defilement or lust involved in his conception. Luke's account makes clear for us what this means, how the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus and Mary. Contrary to many Greek mythologies circulating in Matthew's day and prior to, it's not that God became material and came down and impregnated Mary in a physical way. Which is actually what is believed by, or I should say at least taught by, some Mormons, just so you know. I found a source, a so-called Mormon apostle named Bruce McConkie writes in a 1966 book called Mormon Doctrine, Christ was begotten by an immortal father in the same way that mortal men are begotten by mortal fathers. And now I should also say to give the benefit of the doubt, this is a debated controversy, as you might imagine, in Mormon circles. So the odds are if you pull that one out with your Mormon friends, they might be just as floored as you are. In any case... Here was Mary found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Luke fills in the dots for us in Luke chapter 1. It says, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? (laughs) So Mary apparently expressed no memory of any physical thing happening, and neither does the angel let on any sort of physical happening that's going to happen as far as conception goes in his response. says, And the angel Answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, I'm going to make an assumption here, but perhaps it wasn't until later, like after the angel left and we're not having that supernatural experience anymore, that really the ramifications of what this might mean for Mary's reputation settle in for her. Even so, she said here, and I believe she obviously kept with it, as Luke told us in verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. While we are told by Luke that Mary went to see Elizabeth, and Elizabeth revealed that she was informed that Mary was indeed carrying the Savior. You know, my baby leapt for joy. What we are not told is what transpired when Mary got home, obviously showing. Did Joseph ask her and did she give him that winger? 
Well, an angel of God showed up one night and told me I'd be giving birth to the Son of God, the Savior, right? And like, who do you take me for, Mary? <laughs> Maybe she didn't even reply because she knew how it sounded on the ears and hoped that, well, okay, God revealed the truth to Elizabeth. Will he reveal this to Joseph as well? Whatever transpired and however it happened, we catch Joseph really reflecting God the Father and reflecting God the Son. And I'll show you why here in a minute. But first of all, it says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph is truly a just man. A truly righteous man. It's interesting because on the outset, it might appear to a Pharisee, a devoutly self-righteous religious person, for this to be a paradox. Because Matthew is saying, in essence, that Joseph is righteous because this word and can also mean um, namely. <laughs> so, he was a just man and he was unwilling to put her to shame. So, it could be that Joseph's righteousness was expressed by this action. Namely, and unwillingness to put her to shame. At this point, we find Joseph taking steps to divorce his wife because in that society, again, it was betrothal for all intents and purposes. They were married. So a divorce was in the works. She appeared unfaithful in Joseph's eyes at this moment. Mary was an adulteress. But he was a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. A proverb tells us that Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Paul would seem to echo this on his memorable chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. And I remembered 1 Corinthians 13 as a kid in the NIV, and I really like how they word this verse. It says, love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Now, first of all, Joseph, as I said, is reacting to this apparent adultery. But he's not taking the full steps he could take. The law, namely in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 and 24, tells us that this possibility was at Joseph's disposal. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones the young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, with all that being said, I had a few conversations with a few of you here this last week, just talking about this idea. I have my own unqualified, extremely lacking in education muse here, and that is the law was written for an unconquered Israel. Joseph is living in an Israel that's conquered by Rome that didn't necessarily allow its subjects to execute people. Now, I don't know how far that overreach went. Would Rome really care if a random adulteress was stoned by a little, in a little village like Nazareth? Especially if no Roman soldier caught wind of it. Who knows? Maybe this executing Mary was really on the plate of possibilities for Joseph. Virtually all the commentaries I read bring out this passage from Deuteronomy and say, hey, look at what Joseph didn't do here. Now, don't hear me wrong. Even 
If the possibility of acting on this law from Deuteronomy was not available to Joseph because of his circumstances, the truth still stands as to what Matthew is saying, that Joseph is acting on compassion and mercy on the face of what appears to be adultery. In fact, it's possible, quite likely, that Joseph's peers would rather have Joseph expose such an adulteress in however way he could here, but Joseph resolves to divorce Mary quietly. This righteousness honed in and directed by compassion and mercy makes me think about the babe in Mary's womb when he grows up and gives the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So we open here with this marriage between Joseph and Mary. A marriage painted by two parties. One, at first glance, we have a man who is righteous and compassionate and the other that appears to be a harlot. Furthermore, we have the reality that Mary is not a harlot, but one that illustrates the transcendence of the God of the universe who overshadowed her to become as real and intimate as one can get. Conception. And it reminds us of the biblical reality that God, our maker, is so in love and in fact married really to a harlot of people. We go back to our passage in Isaiah 54 that we looked at at the beginning and we read on. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. See, that very same God is full of complete righteousness and complete justification to pour out wrath on deserving sinners. Because He is altogether holy and perfect. Unlike Joseph, who thinks in Mary he finds an adulteress, in us God does find adultery. And so this almighty, perfect, and transcendent God, though he finds himself, though, in a marriage with us, and so instead of acting on his righteous wrath, he chooses compassionate mercy, and the almighty and the transcendent becomes the fragile and the childlike, and he comes in the womb of Mary. Paul would sum up Jesus' advent in this way in Genesis or Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In Mary's womb is the righteous Lord personifying love, personifying compassion and mercy. He's coming under the law, under the covenant that the one true God set up, and He's going to fulfill that law, fulfill that covenant, and in doing so adopt us as sons and daughters of the living God. In Joseph, we see the reflection of God's righteousness and compassion. Do you hear that? Uh, I don't know where this hits you today. Maybe you need to hear that God is both righteous, 
So we ought not to be okay with sin. (laughs) And he's also compassionate. So we need not to be afraid to seek his forgiveness. Maybe you need to take a cue from Joseph and reflect the father that maybe you feel sinned against. And unlike Joseph, perhaps it's legitimate. Even so, when Joseph thought it was legitimate, he still maintained righteousness while practicing compassion and mercy. Maybe that's what you need to do today. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we know the story of Christmas so much, it seems, that we never stop to, to slow down and to consider what might be going through Joseph's mind. There is an interim between the time that he thought here was his wife that he had plans for and she had fallen from grace in his eyes. And in that interim, before you revealed to him that indeed she was honest and truthful, we even see in that fragile moment where any number of us in, any, in that culture could have chosen any number of evil things to do, yet Joseph was a just man. He was a righteous man who directed his righteous anger with compassion and mercy. And it reminds us that that's how you treat us, that though you have completely justifiable reasons to be wrathful at us, Whenever you send Jesus, you direct that wrath through the channel of love and compassion. Father, would you help us to be righteous as well as compassionate, to know how to temper those things together? Many of us want to act in anger whenever we see injustice take place. And in many cases, righteous anger might be required of us, but also in many cases, compassion and mercy is what's needed. Help us to be like you in this sense. Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for coming to take away our sins. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.